0: Well, it has been good to be here, hasn't it? We could, uh, we've, we've sung, we've prayed, we've worshiped, we've talked about mission, we've uh, had good fellowship. We could go home right now and just say it's been good to have church today. But let's don't, because I prepared a message. So uh, let me go ahead and deliver that. You should have your Bibles open to Psalm 145. One more time, you have an opportunity today. This is going to be your last time in church to have this opportunity. So take advantage of it. Lean over to the person next to you and tell them, get a grip. Tell them, get a grip. There you go, get a grip. Let me welcome you to the final week. This is week four, uh, the final week of this series where we have been learning to get a grip on our finances, to get a grip on how we manage what God entrusts to us. Uh, Let me give you a brief review of what we've talked about just because repetition is good and I want to make sure that we're building line upon line, precept upon precept, and, and that we're stepping up these building blocks each week. As we go, three weeks ago when we began, we were talking about generosity. We learned to get a grip on, not generosity, gratitude, I should say. We learned to get a grip on gratitude. We were in Matthew 6 where we talked about the fact that God is our provider. He provides all that we need and we can simply live with a heart. Of thankfulness. That was week one. Week two was when we were talking about generosity. Second Corinthians 8 and 9, we were learning how to live with generosity. And we talked about the fact that we're all born how? How are we all born? Say it. Yeah, stingy. We're all born stingy, and we all ought to be born again generous. And generosity is a choice. That we make. That was week number two gratitude, generosity. Week number three, last week, we were talking about getting a grip on stewardship. We were studying Luke 16, where we learned about the unjust steward and how that God has entrusted everything that we have to us and that we are to be trustworthy as we manage those things for His glory. You'll remember last week this essential stewardship principle, and we're going to put it on the screen. I want you on both campuses and even at home, I want you to say this out loud with me as they put it up on the screen. It is that God is the owner and I am the manager. Would you say it with me? God is the owner. I am the manager. It's an essential ethic of everyone who understands stewardship. I don't own anything. I don't really have the right to anything. Everything that is in my possession has been given to me, lent to me really, by God. And he expects me to manage those things in a way that honors him. And by the way, that's not just my money. It certainly is my treasure, but it's also my time. We all get 24 hours in a day. We ought to manage our time in a way that honors the Lord. It's also our talents or our gifts, the things that we can do. We ought to use those for his glory. It's also our relationships. We all have relationships. I shouldn't sabotage them. I shouldn't destroy them. I shouldn't torpedo them. I shouldn't take advantage of them. I should use or I should manage those relationships in a way that advances the kingdom of God and honors the Lord. Really, it's everything. My time, my my checkbook, my calendar, everything that I have, It belongs to the Lord. So God is the owner, I'm the manager. That's that essential stewardship principle. And then also last week we learned the rhythm. Do you remember we talked about the rhythm of stewardship? How we walk in a cadence or a rhythm of stewardship. And that is to say that we work and then we give and then we save and then we enjoy. That's the right rhythm of stewardship. I work, that produces an income. From my income, I give to the Lord first. I save some for the future, and I enjoy some in my life now. That cadence, that march of stewardship in my life, or living in that rhythm, will allow me to live in such a way really, not just that rhythm, but all three of these values of gratitude, generosity, and stewardship. If I live in that that way with those values, if I walk in that rhythm, if I remember that God owns everything and I simply manage everything, it will allow me to live with peace and a measure of prosperity, and it will uh, enable my life to have an impact while I'm here. And I'm not just a consumer of stuff until I die. No, I'm living in a rhythm and in a cadence and in a way with some values that allows us to have impact while we're here. But that leads us to the question of what about after that? What happens after that? After we live? Which, by the way, we will all have an after that, won't we? None of us are going to live forever in this life. All of us will ultimately die if the Lord tarries his return beyond our our lifetimes, so we're all gonna end up in a graveyard somewhere. We can live in a rhythm and with values until that day where our lives will have impact now, but what about once we're in the grave? What can we do that will enable our lives to have an impact after we're gone? Well, that's the question of legacy. And today we're gonna talk about that. Jot it down somewhere. We're gonna talk about getting a grip on our legacy. Getting a grip on how we can live lives that will make a difference when we're gone. Or in other words, how we can leave a legacy. Now you know what a legacy is, right? A legacy is something that someone receives from someone who has died. Uh, This even is uh, the appropriate word that we would usually say an inheritance. Somebody receives an inheritance. Well, really what they receive is a legacy. Even if, you're, if you receive an inheritance of a, of a sum of money or some property or whatever, that is a legacy. It is what someone receives because another person has left it to them when they died. Another way to say it is, our legacy is what we leave behind. Our legacy is how we make a difference in the world when we're no longer in the world. It's how we have an impact once our lives are over. Now, here's the thing. For the Christian, for the person who understands the value of eternity and that there's much more to this life than what's happening while we're on the earth... For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we recognize that our greatest responsibility, I don't say that as hyperbole, it's true. Our greatest responsibility is to pass along the faith that we have received. That is the greatest legacy that we can ever give. Listen, you can leave your descendants millions of dollars and vast lands and holdings and estates. But if you leave them those things without leaving them the faith of Jesus Christ, you've left them disappointed and empty and perhaps even hell-bound. We must understand that the greatest responsibility that we have is to leave a legacy of faith. We pass it on. We give it to our children. We pass it to our grandchildren. We give it to others uh, who are coming along behind us. And this is not what Pastor Jim says. This is what the Bible says, and it says it over and over. In fact, listen to Isaiah 38 and verse 19. Speaking to God, here's what Isaiah says. The living man, he shall praise you as I do this day, And the Father shall make known your truth to the children. There's the legacy. There's what we're passing. The Father shall make known to the children your truth, the truth about who you are. You have your Bibles open to Psalm 145. Turn back a few pages to Psalm 78. Would you you do that? Psalm 78. And uh, I want you to look with me in verse number 3. Psalm 78, verse 3 where the psalmist is speaking of the things that he knows of God, the the parables, the truths that have been revealed to him about God. He says in verse number three, "Uh, we have heard these things and known them, and our fathers have told them to us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and he appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should make those things, that testimony and those laws, they should make them known unto their children, that the generation to come, would you say those words out loud with me, the generation to come, say it, that the generation to come, listen, they matter, they matter. You know, our perspective is so limited to our brief season on the earth. But what God wants us to do as His stewards is to recognize that this thing didn't begin with us and it's not going to end with us. And there are others who are coming along behind us and they matter to Him. That the generation to come might know them. They might know the works of God. They might know the testimony of God. They might know the laws of God, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, which are yet to be born, who should then arise and declare them to their children, which certainly haven't been born yet. He's looking forward multiple generations that they should declare them to their children now, why is this so important if you read verses 3 down through verse number 6 four generations at least are in view our fathers us our children their children four generations this is easy for us because most of us will live to see four generations a few of us will live to see five but not many of us will live that long but perhaps most of us will live to see four. I, I know my parents and I know my children now I know my grandchildren. Now maybe by God's grace uh, then I'll even see their children. But at least four generations are in view here. Why should we be so concerned about taking the faith of Jesus the things of God, the truths of God which we've received and passing those things along to the next generation and to the uh, future and following generations. Look at verse 7. Here's why. So that they might, that is those who haven't even been born yet, so that they might, because we passed along what we knew, that they might set their hope in God. That's why it matters. That they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Do you see it? Here's the value proposition. Here's the reason this matters is because there are future generations coming. And do you know what they will need? They will need to set their hope in God. They will need to know His laws, His word. And they will need to keep His commandments and obey Him. So the Bible tells us over and over again that we are to leave a legacy and that we're to leave a legacy of faith. Now, back to Psalm 145. That's our text. I want to read this text. Today, uh, Let me tell you before we read it, this is a psalm of David, Psalm 145, written by King David, written late in his life. In fact, many people believe Psalm 145 is the final psalm that David ever wrote. It was written after many years of, of knowing the Lord and walking with him and having a long uh, experience with God in his goodness and his power and, and his mercy. It is a psalm of praise In the highest degree, it is praise uh, exalted. I need to tell you that some of you are going to be a little uncomfortable with it. That the pitch of this praise in Psalm 145 is so high that you're going to wince a little bit at it. You're going to be a little uncomfortable with it because it's going to go a little higher, a little further than maybe you have ever been comfortable going in your own life. It is, some have said, a lesson in praise. In fact, one writer that I read uh, this week said that Psalm 145 could be a textbook if you were taking a class called Praise 101. Psalm 145 would be the textbook for that class. It's a beautiful psalm. We'll read Uh, about half of it, a little more than half of it. Psalm 145, beginning in verse number one. I will extol thee, my God, O King. I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee. And I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable, unfathomable. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, of thy awesome acts. And I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness. And they shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He is slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. All of thy works shall praise thee. O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. For thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations." Do you hear it? The high pitch, the emphatic, the celebratory praise of Psalm 145. Interestingly, by the way, Psalm 145, uh, probably the last psalm that David wrote, but it introduces uh, the last five psalms of the book of Psalms, the songbook of the Hebrew people, the book of Psalms. These last five, Psalm 146, 47, 48, 49, and 150, these are called the Psalms of praise. And they're called that because all five of them begin with this phrase. Uh, look at Psalm 146, verse one. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 147, verse one. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 148, verse one. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 149, verse one. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 140, or 150, verse one. Praise ye the Lord. These are called the Psalms of praise or the Psalms of hallelujah. Because you may already know this, but let me just remind you that the English phrase praise ye the Lord means that that's the English equivalent of the single Hebrew word hallelujah. And so each of these final five Psalms begins with hallelujah. Hallelujah. Why don't we say that word out loud together? It's not a word that you use very often, but today's a good day to use it. It's five syllables, but you're smart people and articulate. I know you can do it. Let's say it out loud together. One, two, three. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Wow, that was great. Do it one more time. Let me hear you, Merriman. Hallelujah. Right. This means praise you the Lord. I have a friend of mine who every time I pray with him, he begins his prayer, first word out of his mouth, he'll bow his head, he'll say, hallelujah, Lord, And then he begins to pray. I thought, what a great way to begin your prayer. Psalm 145 introduces us to the final section, the final uh, part of the book of Psalms, which is the Psalms of praise. I want you to go back to Psalm 145. And in verse number four, I want you to circle it. And maybe, you know, it's hard to circle the whole verse. Maybe just highlight it some way. Put an asterisk in the margin next to it. I want you to notice in Psalm 145, verse four, It says to us, one generation shall praise thy works to another. That's a command. It's a legacy command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a statement of fact. It is a command, as in, thou shalt do this. Each generation shall. It is God's command. We shall praise his works to another generation or to the next generation generation. Now who's to do this? Who is responsible for taking what we know of God, it's been given to us, and passing that to the next generation? Well, the fact is everyone is responsible for this, but let me just apply it very personally. Let's begin with parents. If you have children, and I know not all of us uh, do, but if you have children, you have a very distinct responsibility, as I've already mentioned, to take what is true of God and to give it to your Children. Now, I also want to impress upon fathers. I want all of you dads to listen to me. I want you to hear your pastor today. More importantly, hear God's word. It is your responsibility, Dad, to step first, to take the lead in that. If you're a father, do not abdicate the spiritual training of your children to your wife. Thank God for your wife if she's a godly mother and is capable of doing that. But sir, God has called you to lead your family spiritually. You go first. And I want you to know that everything that God is going to say to us out of this passage today, God is saying to you who are fathers. Certainly it's true of mothers as well. It's true of couples, parents. Some of us are single moms or single dads. And so it's, it's true to all of us who have kids. It's also true for grandparents. grandparents have the great blessing of influencing their grandchildren and passing along what is true. But it's not only true to those who have kids. It's true for all of us. We all have people coming along behind us. There's a future generation coming in in our friends and in our influences and in our church and in our life group. And we need to be sure that we are passing along what is true We're leaving a legacy. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, David tells us in Psalm 145, he says that leaving a legacy means, write this down, that we are teaching the next generation of God's greatness. We're teaching the next generation of God's greatness. God is great. He is. Now, pop culture loves to celebrate the greatness of personalities. You know, the greatness of... uh, Athletes, the greatness of sports figures. We we celebrate the greatness of um, pop heroes like actors and celebrities. Uh, Even celebrating the greatness of our favorite political leaders. We, We love to celebrate what we think is great, who we think is great. Well shouldn't, if that's the way it is in the in the culture. Certainly, it should be true that among the people of God that we celebrate above all else, above everyone else, we celebrate the greatness of God. Amen. That we we celebrate who he is. And David does this. He declares the greatness of God. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 145: Great is the Lord, and because of that, he is greatly to be praised. In other words, his praise ought to match his greatness great is the lord and greatly to be praised and the land uh, land uh, uh, and in his greatness uh, his greatness is unsearchable or unknowable or unfathomable verse number 6 says the same thing men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and will declare your greatness now when the bible says that god's great what it's speaking of is the superlative quality of who god is simply it means no one nothing is above him or beyond him, nothing. He is the I am, he is the great I am. So in any category, he is the greatest. He's the wisest, he's the strongest, he's the purest. He is the greatest. We love to talk about the goats in athletics, don't we? The goat, the greatest of all time. Is it Michael or LeBron, the goat? Well, that's an obvious answer, but that's for another discussion. <laughs> Let me assure you, God is the greatest of all. It says in verse 3 and 6 that he is great. Secondly, David tells us that God is uh, the greatest in his glory, in his majesty, verse number 5. He says, I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty. Uh, now, interestingly, the, the word honor here means to make heavy to be heavy with honor. Think about the, uh, the military leader that you've seen that has the chest with the most medals. Maybe uh, some great general who is wearing medals all down his chest and stripes all over his shoulders. He's been made heavy with honor. What you see when he walks in the room is the glory, the honor of who he is and his service. Maybe think about a graduation ceremony that you've gone to and you've seen that person walk across, that student walk across the platform who has the, every sash and every medallion and every uh, um, sort of honor uh, indicator that you could put on a graduate. This person knew it all and excelled at it all and has been honored for it all. That's the person that walked across the stage right after I walked across the stage and graduated, not kumasum laud, but thank the Lord I graduated. (laughs) But you see that graduate come across the stage and you say, that person has been made heavy. With honor. Here's what David's saying. He's saying that when you think about God, know this that all of eternity, all of the glory and the badges and the sashes and the medals of eternity hang upon this singular God. He is heavy with glorious honor and majesty. Isaiah saw this God in Isaiah chapter number six, and he described him his robe. Think about a royal robe that bespeaks of honor. He saw his robe filling the temple. God is great. God is glorious and majestic. Verse 7, he says that God is righteous. This is God's greatness when we think about his righteousness. Verse 7, they shall abundantly utter the memory of thy goodness. They shall sing of thy righteousness. In his perfections, he is flawless. There's no shadow of turning in him. There's no evil in him. There is no secretive uh, uh, um, hidden thing in him that is unholy. He is perfectly righteous. Verse 11 speaks about his power. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. That he has strength and might and limitless ability. And then verse 13 speaks of his permanence. He's everlasting. That kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and that dominion endures throughout all generations. So what David would say to us in this textbook of Praise 101 is that we have learned, we have been taught the greatness of God and we should tell the next generation that God is great and glorious and majestic, that he's righteous and powerful and he's eternal and future generations need to know. They need to know. I should tell you they're not going to know automatically. They, they, They don't pick it up automatically. They have to be taught. It has to be passed along and enforced and reinforced and celebrated and praised so that it is driven down deep into their hearts of who they are. In the 15th and the 16th centuries in Europe, as many of you know, there were great reformation movements beginning with Martin Luther and the reformation in the 16th century. and That led to great revival movements across Europe. and those revival movements led to change lives and tra- change cities. And really it changed the continent. Great cathedrals were built to the glory of God. And yet today, if you travel almost anywhere in Europe, those cathedrals and most of the churches in Europe are empty. Because somewhere in the last few centuries, somebody forgot to tell the next generation of the greatness of God. And that can happen. And I think it is happening in our nation already... And it can even happen in our families if we don't pass it along. David tells us that we should declare the greatness of God. second thing, though, that David says in Psalm 145 is that if we're going to teach the the next generation, pass on this legacy, we need to teach the next generation of God's goodness. His, His greatness first, but also of his goodness. Can you imagine? Think about the God that David describes that we've just been thinking about in Psalm 145. A God who is... Uh, majestic and powerful, who is glorious and righteous and perfect and holy and eternal. Can you imagine such a great God if he were not also good? Well, that would be the most fearsome being in all eternity, if God were that perfect and powerful, and yet, if he were not kind and good. But David says that he's good, and we need to tell the next generation that he's good. Look at verse number 7. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness. He's saying in verse number seven that God does not do good, but rather God is good. Goodness is not something that God does. Goodness is who God is. He is good. He says in verse number eight, he is full of grace. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Praise God, he is slow to anger, and he is of great mercy. The word here, verse number eight, is the Hebrew word chesed. I've taught you this word before. It means his long-suffering, his patient kindness, that he is just perpetually kind. Are you glad that this is the character of your God? Perpetually kind. His mercies are new. Every morning he's patient with us slow to anger. God is great and God is good. David gives us the theology of our legacy in Psalm 145. He teaches us the goodness of God, the greatness of God. It is what is true of God. And even when I say it that way, God is great, God is good. You may remember the the little blessing that you prayed over your meal. Many of you did as a child where we said, God is great, God is good. Thank you Lord, for our food, by his hands we all are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. God is great, God is good. It's good theology to teach your little ones. God is great and God is good. He teaches us this theology of who God is, what it is that we need to pass along, but he also indicates in this passage how it is that we pass along this legacy. These are the things I know about God. He's great and he's good, but how do I pass that to the next generation. Because quite honestly, sometimes they don't seem very interested, do they? And sometimes they seem really distracted. And the truth is, there are a lot of competing voices telling them a lot of things that are the opposite of these truths. So what do I do as a parent? What do I do as a grandparent? What do we do as a church? How does it, how is it that we can pass along this legacy? Well, I think there are some things that we can do. Write it down. Number one, I would say that we most influence the next generation with our words. Start by talking. We most influence the next generation with our words. Verse five, verse 11, talk about speaking. I will speak, verse five says, I will speak of the glorious honor of your majesty, and of your wondrous works. Now, by the way, the word that's translated speak in verse number five really, really in the first place means to meditate and then speak. Here's another way to say it. It means to speak thoughtfully. To speak thoughtfully to the next generation about our God. Listen to what he says in verse number 11. Verse 11, he says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, and they shall talk of your power. Now, a moment ago, I referenced fathers. The statistics that are, that are the most discouraging facts about how infrequently fathers speak to their children, have a conversation with their children, bring into sharp view the need that we would talk to them about the things of God. you know... That they say that on average, a father spends less than five minutes a day in conversation with his children. Serious conversation, not five minutes a day. And when they're growing, these little ones, we only have so many years with them before they're going to move on out, and fathers especially, but certainly mothers and grandparents as well. Let me challenge you to take up the mantle of David's challenge to give your legacy, the legacy of faith to your children and grandchildren by meditating on what is true of God, knowing in your own heart what is true of God, and then talking about those things to your kids, sitting with them, talking with them. Conversations are powerful, they make a difference. I hear this all the time. You know, someone will pass away and family members will say to me, well, I, yeah, I think they were a Christian. I mean, they sure lived like one, but they never really talked about it much. Listen to your pastor, talk about it. Don't let your children or your grandchildren gather at your grave and go, well, just never said much about it. No, give them what is true of God, Talk to them about how great and how good God is. Give them your testimony. Tell them your own story. And tell them how God has been good to you. In the 12th century, St. Francis of Assisi reportedly said, Preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. It's the dumbest statement in the history of Christendom. Now, some would say he didn't even really say that. He said something close to that. I don't know. But you have to use words. Speak the things of God. We influence when we talk. Words make a difference. Secondly, I would say to you that the way that we pass along this legacy is to say that we most inspire the next generation with our worship. So we most influence them with our words, but then we inspire them with our worship. Verse one, verse two, verse seven. This is why I said you might be a little uncomfortable with this because in verse one he says, I will extol thee. It means I will lift you high. I will bless you, verse one, verse two. It means I will kneel down before you. I will praise you, verse number two. It's the Hebrew word hallel, hallelujah. It means I will shout for joy. I will boast in you. I will sing out, verse seven, shouting for joy. I will sing out loud. Here's the thing. If you want to pass along a legacy of the faith to your kids, let, you, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. Now, you listen to me, you middle aged folks and older folks, and I'm one of you, so I can say this. I challenge you to let your expressions of praise rise to the level of the greatness of your God. Because what happens in churches so often, and yea, even sometimes, and with some of us here at Brookstone, is that the younger generation come into worship and their praise is far and away out in front of the older folks while we stand just waiting for the music to end. I'm going to challenge you, let the youth of our church see the adults of our church praise him to the degree that he deserves. Let your... You want to influence and leave a legacy. You let your kids say this when you pass. I'm going to tell you something about my daddy. He couldn't sing a lick, but that didn't stop him from trying. <laughs> let me tell you something about my, my daddy. He wouldn't shout at a ball game louder than he would praise God at church. I just stopped preaching with the meddling, so I'll move on. There ought to be an obvious connection between how great and good we say God is and how we praise him. All right, So that's that's the legacy. He says God is great, God is good. That's the theology of our legacy. And then he says, here's the way we pass it on. We influence with our words and we inspire with our worship. Now, if you're thinking at this point, what does all this have to do with my money? I thought we were talking about getting a grip on my money. Well, I'm glad you hung around to the end. That's the last point, all right? So jot it down. It is that we most impact the next generation with our wealth. So you see, we influence them with our words, we inspire them with our worship, but we impact them with our wealth. Listen to what he says in verse number four. One generation shall declare your glories, your praise, your works to the next generation. Verse number six, they shall declare your greatness. The word declare means to put out in the front to shine a light on or to highlight the greatness of God, the goodness of God is going to be put and given the primary importance as we declare it. Then in verse 12, he says to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. The word make known means to cause to understand, to explain it, to show it so that they will actually understand it here's the question how can we make certain that Christ is known that he is understood that his glory and his might and his majesty his greatness and his goodness that those things are front and center and being made known and understood by the next generation how can we do that after we're gone Once my words have faded from memory and my lips, my praise has been quieted by death, how can I know that my life will be causing Christ to be magnified? Well, I would suggest to you that the way that we do that is by investing our wealth into those, into that. Organism that organization that God has designed to make Christ known and that will outlive us. That's the church. And even even parachurch organizations that partner with the local church that do great gospel ministry. Here's what I know. One day I'm going to die, but do you know what won't die the day that I die? Brookstone Church won't die. It won't. The ministry will go on. And, and my voice will be silenced and my, my, my praise will be mute. But what I have in this life invested into this body will continue to make Christ known. And so we impact future generations with our wealth. We can give it. We can invest it. Let me suggest two things as we close. Number one, I mentioned this in passing last week. Let me just drill down on it for a a minute here. That is to say that I I challenge you to support uh, your church with your tithe. You make it an investment of your life while you're living, you're working, you're earning an income, God's giving you some resource that you say, I'm going to make sure that when I'm gone, my church is still carrying on. And so I'm going to support it so that it will be strong. Malachi 3.10 says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. He doesn't say take it and scatter it. He says, you bring the tithe into the storehouse so that my storehouse, my house may be full. And so where you're ministered to, where you're served, where the gospel is proclaimed to your children, where the gospel is proclaimed to your grandchildren and to your community, I challenge you to support your church with the tithe. I would say that if I were not the pastor of this church, I would say this if I were speaking to any other local congregation. Support the church with your tithe. Secondly, something that none uh, that some of you have never considered, and I would challenge you to consider it, is to include your church in your estate planning. That you would prepare that what you leave behind, that part of that is gonna go to the work of God. And that's modeled by David. 2 Chronicles tells us that David knew that he was not going to build the temple, but he knew that he could help the temple be built. And so he prepared gold and silver and iron and all that was needed so that when Solomon took his place on the throne, Solomon could build the temple and he would have everything that he needed. And so David, in fact, uh, 2 Chronicles uh, says to us, in uh, 1 Chronicles 22 and verse 5 says, So David prepared before he died and he determined that he would make sure that the church had what it needed in the long term. I challenge you to do that. It would be one of the greatest investments that you will make in in your estate planning. Uh, You should know that over the years some people uh, have done that and it has brought great blessing and ability into the ministry and others continue to do it now I would encourage all of you to do it. Listen, loved ones, if we will live with these values, God provides me all that I need, I'm gonna be grateful. I was born stingy, but I'm born again now. I'm gonna choose generosity. Everything I have has been lent to me by God. I'm gonna manage it for his glory. I'm gonna walk in this rhythm, work, give, save, enjoy. And then I'm gonna take what I know of God And I'm gonna pass it on. And part of the way I'm gonna do that is by investing the wealth that God entrusts me into his kingdom. If we'll live with those four values, then I promise you, then we will be uh, having a good grip on what God has called us to do with finances. Do you know, you can't give away what you don't possess, right? You can't leave to others what you've never had yourself. And so if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, my challenge to you is give your life to Christ, confess your sins, admit that you're a sinner, believe that Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay the penalty for your sins and to purchase a place for you in heaven and trust Jesus alone to be your Savior.